You're riding on the Denial Bus with Patty Crouch and Holly Gates. Okay, people, my listeners, I have someone very special to me on the podcast today because she was one of the first people I met at Lexi's and, and Zandy's old school. Um, and I remember exactly when I met her because it was middle of this hallway and I immediately trauma mama that I was and my kids being in kindergarten asked her all these questions like how trauma informed she was. And she answered them almost all correctly. And I was like, we're in a good spot. And that was the school psychologist at the time of their school, Tracy. So, Tracy, how are you? Hi, Patty. I'm good. Thank you. Do you remember I'm that? I'm curious. I totally remember that. I'm curious which one, which questions I didn't answer correctly. <laughs> um, I was also like mama bear at that time, a little bit crazier because it was like I had gone from another school that I had like IEPs to get string cheese in. <laughs> the classroom <laughs> and then I went to the school they are now so I was a little bit more like <sighs> so I'm pretty sure at the time I probably felt like you didn't answer it and now I'm like oh you're you're great like you've been great like you've been amazing for our family and I see what uh you've done with Lexi because Lexi actually used your services for three years um, yeah 30 minutes a day not a day a week and she still uses some of those breathing techniques. I mean, sometimes I have to remind her because she's crazy or gets crazy angry, I should say. Um, but she still uses some of those techniques. And we still have this ring that you gave her that, about like the four calming things she's allowed to do. Oh, yeah. Great. I'm glad she still has that. Um, we, we made many of those because they got lost a lot of times. But I'm glad she, she kept one. <laughs> uh, I have it. And I'm like, do you need this? She's like, no. And I was like, so it's, it's funny. Um but yeah, so, okay. So how long, so you're a school psychologist. Um, mm-hmm. How long have you been a school psychologist? I don't know this information. Okay. Well, um, this is my 10th year. And actually this, being a school psychologist was a, basically a second career for me. So um, what was your, what I'm was starting your, my 10th year. What was your first career? My first career, I was a film producer and manager. What? <laughs> I can't believe you didn't know that. I swear, I, must, I thought I must have told you that at some point. I know. I mean, when we talk, we mainly talk kids. Let's be real. I like use your gift that you've given us, and like I'm like, what do you think about this? And we talk a lot about the girls. Um, and I'm so I'm like, I'm so grateful that you're no longer at their school because I feel like a we mm-hmm. can be actual friends and i never have to like worry about the lines being blurred because it's one of those hard things when you actually start liking someone but then they work at your school you don't like you don't want to put them in a weird situation where people think they're playing favoritism or whatever and you don't want to have admin be weird about anything so it's like i always kind of like wanted to hang out with you but couldn't really because <laughs> of all the dynamics you know so now i'm like we can be friends and then covid happened so we can't be friends <laughs> But one day. Oh, I know. I feel the same. I feel the same. But I feel like we, we kept those lines pretty um, tight. We could still be friends and bond over Mrs. Maisel and yes, kids and all that. But now I feel like I can go drinking with you. You know, like yes. beforehand I couldn't. You know? Yes, that's true. And we can one day. Hopefully one day. Again. So what made you decide a career change from like film producing to like school school well, like psychologists I um I had a baby who went to preschool and in preschool we could clearly see that there were um some differences and um I really struggled with uh his ability to regulate in preschool which was much more extreme than everybody else. And um, the preschool basically told us we had to hire a one-on-one for him in order to stay. And so that was the beginning of me kind of exploring um, the world of special needs. And we went to our district and we got an, um, an assessment. And I had always been interested in psychology. And I sort of felt like, as a producer, you use a lot of psychology anyway because you know, <laughs> the film business, lots of 
lots of um, lots of differently abled and challenged people <laughs> um, in different ways. Um, the adult version. So I just I don't know. All of a sudden, I think it coincided with um, just becoming a certain age and wanting to do something more meaningful and feeling like all of a sudden I was you know, working on films that, um, well, I love movies and I love films that just, they seemed less important than real world stuff. And so I decided to disband my company and, um, go back to school and, um, get a degree, um, in school psychology. So I did that. Wow. That was, that was the journey. Two things. One, I'm proud of you that you actually like follow through because I have all these ideas. Like when Jackson had his open heart surgery, I was like, I'm going to become a nurse. And then I look it up and I'm like, I am not going to become a nurse. (laughs) And I do the same thing, like this trauma world, because I've been forced into it, I'm like, maybe I should become a family marriage therapist. And then I look into it and I'm like, I am not going to become a family marriage therapist. So it's awesome that you actually saw that and then like followed through and got your PhD and everything or you're in the middle well, of your no. PhD. Hold on. I didn't the school psychology is a master's program. I did go back to um and do another doctorate program. I mean a doctorate program, which I finished a year ago, but I still have to write my dissertation. So I'm not a doctor yet. Okay. Soon to be. I'm so talking about following through, I hope, you know, from your mouth to God's ears, I actually sit down and write my dissertation. And I should be doing that. And um, hopefully I will get that done. I don't know how you can get that done when you're working full time, parenting full time and marriaging full time. Like, how do you do that? I don't know. I okay. don't know. My, it's, call, it's calling into uh, um, youth my executive functioning skills, which are feeling very challenged. <laughs> Let's see. Check back with me in a year. Hopefully I will. Uh, okay, we will. We'll circle back. on my way. We'll do yeah. a quickie with you and be like, so did you ever do it? Nope. Okay, well, you still <laughs> got a year. <laughs> um, so is there, a, it's a different master's program than psychology. Like a school psychology is its own thing. Not, it's, it's not its like. It's its own thing. Oh, I did it's not its know that. It's its own thing. You know, um, it's different. It's um, through, um, it's typically through its own division out of school. Different schools have it um, lined up differently. But you get a um, master's in school psychology and you get a, I mean, this is probably too much getting into the weeds, but you get a, um, a PPS, which is a um, um, personal people service. Um, I guess it's there. I don't even know if it's a credential or I'm not even sure. But yeah, and it's, um, yeah, it's its own thing. It's its own thing. And then once, once you have that, I'm, I also, which you, once you are a school psychologist for several years, you can go get a license that you have to take a you know, test and you have to pass it. And then you can become a licensed educational psychologist, which I've done also. So, and then that allows you, so school psychologists can only work in a school setting. Okay. And a licensed educational psychologist can have a private practice. So, and then what would be the um, difference between like an educational licensed psychologist I, I think I messed the order up of that an educational it's psychologist a, what's the difference between an educational psychologist and a psychologist then like what do y'all what is y'all's focus and what is that are y'all's focus really education because I don't feel like you ever talked well you did talk about education with I mean well, explain the difference um, okay um so a clinical psychologist so there's all different kinds of psychologists there is <laughs> yeah there are and there are all kinds but a clinical psychologist is what most people know. And a clinical psychologist has a either PhD or a PsyD, and they've passed a different test. And that's through the American um, Psychological Association. A licensed educational psychologist is through the um, Behavioral Board of Sciences. In that, um, that is um, the board that also governs marriage and family therapists and many other things which I probably am not thinking about. Um, I, I'm not even sure I totally know other than those areas, but I think it covers a lot of different areas. And um, and licensed educational psychologists can have a private practice and basically they can do all the things that a school psychologist does in a private setting, but they can also counsel 
um, any age, including adults, because it, um, as long as they are um, focusing on issues that are impacting them educationally or vocationally. So it's kind of a funny um, wording, but I think really, um, I think that the basic idea is that you really can only practice um, within your scope. So if you are um, a licensed educational psychologist who really has mostly focused on assessments, then that's what you would do. But if you also have been trained in um, counseling, then you can counsel anybody who's concerns or issues are impacting them educationally or academic. So, for instance, depression. Depression can be debilitating for anybody in their job, in their college, in their high school or elementary school. So you could, as a licensed educational psychologist, take on that child and help them with their depression issues or their anxiety issues or their school refusal or school anxiety or you could also do assessments and you could work with them um, on executive functioning skills if they're having difficulties um, socially. So you could work on social skills. So it's kind of, um, as in all psychologists, you really have to work within what you've been trained in because um, I couldn't go out and do, um, I don't know, let's say music therapy, right? Because I'm not trained in that. So you really have to kind of work within whatever your school is and, and what your board, your governing board allows to do. So my, my board, um, the Behavioral Board of Sciences, has guidelines on what I can do, um, but it fits in with um, my private practice and my school practice, which is you know, assessment, um, social-emotional um, well-being or functioning, um, behavior, executive functioning, ADHD tools, all of that stuff. So those are the areas which I tend to focus in. Which Does ones are, make it makes complete, It makes a lot more sense to me. Okay. Um, you explained it very well. What's your favorite part of it? Like which one do you like? I mean, are you, do you love assess- assessments and paperwork or do you love, <laughs> I don't know why I said paperwork because that seems funny. Um or would you like? Do you really like? What's your like? What do you get a kick out of? Like, do you get a kick out of people doing the social emotional coping skills or um, mm-hmm. or ADHD? So I I'm going to think about how to narrow down that answer because I really do get a kick out of working with students. I mean, that is or children or adolescents. That is that is the greatest um, gift to me, and sometimes. The assessment piece is so rewarding because I get to figure out the puzzle of this child. So sometimes these students come to me and you obviously are like, okay, this is like ADHD and executive function skills and you got this. But sometimes kids come to you and you go, this looks like multiple things. Like it looks like there could be um, something, you know, some pieces that look like they're on the spectrum and there's some pieces and that look like ADHD and some pieces that look like anxiety. And I like figuring out the puzzle of that child. And it's really not so much about putting a label on them. It's about what is going to help them. And so to me, that's the most rewarding part is to figure out like, well, how do we help this kid? And how do we help um, to understand this kid? And how do we help um, those that are working with the student or child how do we help them to kind of maybe shift the way they're looking at this kid who possibly has a lot of behaviorals and sometimes teachers get it, um, have a little bit of a narrow focus and think this kid just has, you know, bad behaviors or, you know, parents let this kid out, run out, out, you know, or out, let this kid function out of control. And in reality, I love to go to teachers and have them have a paradigm shift so they can actually look at the child and maybe a little bit of a different way. So that's one of the things that I really, really find rewarding about what I do. But I also just, you know, the other piece I'm, I just love is the counseling piece. So working with students um, on um, whatever their goals might be through the counseling relationship is really um, something that I find very fulfilling. 
I could I I could have probably told you that part because it was so rewarding sometimes running running into you in the hall, and you just being like so genuinely excited for the progress Lexi made in the last session. Yeah. Like, like, and it's not like maybe I'm used to faking excitement for my daughters half the time in their stories. I'm like, wow, a dragon, okay, but like <laughs> yours, like yours was genuine. Like you were genuinely excited to see me so you can ex- like really share like you were I don't know how to say it like it was, I could see yeah. like the genuinity of like how excited you were for Lexi and what the progress you made and like how exciting it was and on the flip side it was kind of sad sometimes running into her and you're like we got to find her we got to get her out <laughs> like, what we're doing. <laughs> but for them it was so I, I could I probably could have answered that question for you because I really do feel like you love seeing yeah. your students like and your clients like progress and yeah and, and, and move forward. And sometimes it's the ones that you know make like just the minute little shifts that are the most rewarding, right? Like you're like, oh my gosh, it's been three years and we might just turn a little bit of a corner. But I I think that um, you know everybody has their own trajectory, and sometimes it's you know slower than you want but it is still going the right way so yeah how do you handle um, that with parents who you know probably expect you to like quote unquote fix their child you know like what how do you handle parents like that well i didn't expect that from you because i had already been parenting for three years of trauma kids and dealt with the foster care system so i was kind of like do what you can (laughs) like it's all we can do (laughs) well i think that um building a relationship with parents so that they um, so that there's some mutual trust, right? And then some parent education, like maybe where, you know, we, because, you know, we often talk to parents about, like, you know, changing behavior is one of the hardest things you can do. It's like, you know, it's like turning the Titanic from sort of iceberg. The iceberg is like really slow. Um, although that maybe is a bad example because, you know, the Titanic, but, um, but it's slow. I mean, it's like turning a giant ship. It's really slow. And so we have to let parents know and encourage them. And, and actually, um, sometimes for parents, it's harder to see those small changes. Like yeah. they want to see the big changes and they say, um, because they're with the child all the time, they kind of lose sight of what those small changes are. So kind of reminding and, you know, sharing data, like data is, says a lot so if you can tell you know share data with a parent yeah yeah you're right your child is still having these big you know tantrums or big explosive um outbursts but look it's you know instead of you know once every day we're down to once a week so it's still that that one is still big but it's way less so i think it's um um just you know having a lot of communication sharing data having a mutual trust and um and you know being a being open to listening and hearing and and responding to concerns and all that so i think that uh, yeah, I that's, feel, that's where i work from but it doesn't you know <laughs> well you probably have not always it's not always easy probably and not always happening the way it happens i also feel like you probably have a wide range of parents too I mean I know I vacillated where there was moments where I was emailing you maybe like once every other week seeing how sessions were going and then I would be like oh six months later we have two more months of school I probably should check in and see how Lexi's doing you know like there's I feel like I go through emotion go through roller coasters of being in communication and not being in communication and kind of um I mean and that's the truth I mean it's you know it gets there are some school years that are just busier and crazier than others. And there are some years that, you know, as a school psychologist, your caseload is so gigantic um, that, you know, you, you're, you are trying to juggle a lot of things. And with staying child-centered and focused on the students and um, making sure that, that you don't lose sight of that. And that's, um, and that's, that's the way it has to work, right? We cannot, you know, we cannot forego working with students 
because we have too many meetings, right? So it has to stay. You have to, as a school psychologist, really stay centered on the the child. And and, um, and that's hard for some people. I mean, I would say it's not that hard. It's it's not hard for me because I will reprioritize around that. Um, well, I shouldn't say it's not hard. It is hard, but I will pre- um, prioritize around the student rather than a meeting or paperwork. And so, unfortunately, it's the um, plight of the school psychologist. We have a lot of work that we do at home, but that's because our you know you're you're limited to school hours, and um, and you know I can't do paperwork at school when I need to see a child. So. How many hours a, a week or a night would you do? It just depends on the time of year and how many assessments we have. But I, I mean, I've had weeks upon weeks where I've worked every night and every weekend. So it's when I, I, I get a lot of people that want to um, come talk to me about becoming a school psychologist. And I have to always tell them like you, you know, it's, it's, there's something that, um, idealized about having a teacher's schedule, but ask any teacher, like if, you know, if they're um, enjoying getting off at three o'clock and going home and, you know, I don't know, going to the, you know, nail salon. No, not, none of them are during school year. They're all working like a dog, right? Yeah. And so it's the same for psychologists. You are working a lot of hours outside of your, of your student. It's, it's just the way it is. Well, and then, I mean, being a psychologist and IEPs, it's a legal document. So there's all these deadlines and timeframes and things. So mm-hmm. it's not like you can just go, oh, we'll get done. It's like, oh, no, you have 30 days to complete this assessment and yeah. do everything you need to do. So if you're on that deadline, is that what your film producing probably comes in play? Like, are you good at, like, <laughs> manipulating yeah. everything to make it work? Because that's what I feel like producers do is they just make everything Yeah, work. I think you're right. I mean, I definitely think that's true and I was was telling my daughter the other day that what I really loved about being a film producer is probably what a lot of people would really hate but I loved when they were making a movie and I would show up on the set and I would have this kind of anticipation of like and I told her I said I would show up on the set and I would become excited okay like what are you going to throw at me now what are you going to throw at me today and how am I going to solve that problem? And I found that fun, which is probably a little bit twisted, but I'd be like, okay, you know, and I would show up and I would think, you know, you haven't gotten me yet. I've been able to solve the craziest of things. Um, what am I going to see today? And I feel like in the same way, that is exactly how I arrived at school. Like, okay, I have these plans for today. But what is going to come at me today and what I will get done are probably, you know, very two different things. Um, you know, what I expected to get done and what I actually do get done will be two very different things. And oftentimes nothing on my to-do list gets done because we've had a crisis or we've had some other kind of emergency or something pops up or, you know, an emergency meeting or, you know, an upset parent or an upset student like you just don't know so yeah I but I think that's kind of why I like the job too is like it's never you know I'm an ADHD and I don't like things to be the same every day so I like the um it's the not there's you know there's not a real routine to my day it changes every day and it keeps me on my toes (laughs) You're like, what's it going to be throw at you? And you'll fix it and solve it and then do everything else you need to do when you get home. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It's true. Um, what should parents expect from their school psychologists? And like, what questions should they be asking y'all? Well, that's a big question because it depends on kind of what stage. So, um, you know, if, I mean, it kind of depends, right? So there's various stages that you might get um, in contact with your school psychologist. And I should say different schools often have a procedure for um, getting to assessment. So it kind of would probably depend a little bit on your school's procedures. But 
that what you should expect from your school psychologist, I think, would be some communication. And if you had concerns about your students, um, you could totally reach out to your school psychologist. I often field those calls first and then might recommend that we go to an SST. Sometimes school psychologists want you to go to the um, straight to the SS team already, which is the student, um, they call them different things, student support team or student study team, where you, where that is a good first step if your school has that in place. And the reason for this is, is not to put off parents, but sometimes um, parents' concerns or students' um, issues can be solved by um you know, general ed interventions. So, so there's a lot of best practice and teaching that can occur that doesn't always occur, right? So, like if a student maybe is having anxiety about test taking um, and is really not doing well on tests, you don't need to necessarily go have an assessment for that first. You could try some different things. You could have know that um, I know for my daughter she has a lot of test anxiety and she worked out with her teacher that she's she's in high school so it's a little different but she's gonna she can go in 10 minutes before the test and she can sit on her desk and she can do her breathing and she can do her self positive self talk and um, the teacher will um, um, give her a quiet space to get started and a quiet place in the room so that she can work and not get worried about if people are starting to finish their testers, that's best practice. You don't need an assessment for that. There's lots of things that, lots of general ed interventions. If a student um, maybe um, it has a little bit slower processing or a little bit of an attention um, deficit, you don't need an IEP to solve those, some of those difficulties. What you should do is try first some interventions. So, because what happens when we do an assessment as a school psychologist, if we are assessing the student who has pretty good grades, but has some attention issues, um, but has not had any intervention at all, then we're going to look, we're going to go through all the tests. We're going to say, you know, they're doing pretty well and they've had no intervention. And it's, you know, and this is not a student who's a candidate for an IEP because they are not meeting the eligibility criteria. Plus, we haven't even seen if they can respond to any, any interventions. So, mm. so what I would say is that your school psychologist, um, in the in the best case scenario, should or in a typical scenario, should be able to um, co- consult and collaborate with teachers, with parents. Um, and can even um, consult and collaborate with a student um, who's capable of, of that and talk about best ways to support the student um, before we move into special ed. So if, I'm assuming that you're asking about what would parents um, who are thinking they, their students have needs, or I don't know if you're talking about parents who already have students. I'm talking about needs. it all. I, guess, I, feel okay. like, I feel like I, as a, I don't have a neurotypical kid, so maybe this is an inaccurate statement for me to say, but I feel like because I was in foster care for so long, foster care system for so long, uh-huh. that I feel like I've learned to advocate for my kids way uh-huh. sooner than most parents realize mm-hmm. or feel comfortable doing. Like they just kind of trust that the school is going to do things. And in my head, I'm like, you just can't like trust that they're going to do it. Like if you see a concern, voice up if you see you know it doesn't have to be like you like you said like in this call an IEP or like call for an assessment it's like be in communication with your school's teacher you can you're allowed to reach out to the school psychologist and see and maybe they can absolutely work on it on their own but I don't feel like people know that they can do that or don't feel comfortable doing that because I've had people come up to me going I mean should I try send an email to the teacher I'm like yes send an email to the teacher like why are you not talking about oh, this already yeah, like for- and I would say um, be an advocate for your child, whether they have an IEP or not an IEP. Reach out to teachers. Reach out to administration. Reach out to the school psychologist. I think that's a fair thing to say because school psychologists support all students on campus. They support special ed students and general ed students. Um, 
Um, and it's often through consultation and collaboration with teachers, um, admin, staff, and parents, right? Um, and I think that um, there are gen ed interventions that a school psychologist can be part of also. And um, I've been involved in many behavioral interventions for general ed students. Um, if your student is in crisis, I just want to say this because this is a really important piece. If you have a student in crisis, whether it's um, whatever it is, whether it's suicidal ideation or just um, emotional deterioration or, you know, they're making um, you know, either self-harm comments or threats or whatever, that is, um, should be, you know, that is a, the um, purview of a school psychologist to help with crisis as well. Or even if there's just some um, crisis in the community or crisis at school or crisis in the family, um, a school psychologist should also be um, there to support. Um, I feel like you're forgotten because I really didn't know that every school has one and like that it was, I, I honestly only, like until right now, I didn't realize that you were for everyone. <laughs> but yeah, you were you just for, for Lexi I mean, and Zandy. <laughs> That's all you're hired for. <laughs> well, you're tied. You're tied to special ed. So I mean, that is the truth. You come. You, you know, you're you are funded through special ed. So all of your counseling is for. Um, it's called CIS. You know, designated instructional um, service counseling, and that that's through an IEP. So I don't do ongoing counseling for a Gen Ed student. But I would definitely do, if a student was in crisis, I would do um, that immediate both risk assessments and threat assessments and maybe make a safety plan and do some checking in and meet with the parent. And, um, Just, and then try to connect, if they're a gen ed student, try to connect that student to maybe community resources or if the school has resources outside of that, that as well. But, I mean, I want to just um, address one thing because in districts, those sites are spread out over multiple schools. And so you might only have your school psych at your site one or two days a week. So there in, you know, the caseload can be really high. I think I saw someone where they're like, um, I can't remember what the um, designated numbers are, but I think it's one, I mean, what the official numbers that you can have more than this, I actually should have looked this up. I think it's one site to a thousand students. So, one, you know, what was it, that again? One per. It's one school psych per a thousand students. It's something like that. The numbers wow. are really high. So, you um, you might be spread out over three schools. And that means you're, you're going back and forth between three schools. So, it sometimes is hard to do all of um, the things that I know all school psychs want to do. I mean, because the best part of being a school psych is when you are like, part of that school culture or that school fabric and you get to be um you know part of creating a school culture that you know whatever it is like anti-bullying or you know close mindset or, or embrace diversity like whatever you want like we all signed up for this to influence um and be part of that kind of school culture but it's hard when you're spread out over a few different schools, you know? Yeah, I can imagine. Um, that so, probably was one of the, that was probably one of the uh, hard things for you to leave the school that we were at. Yeah. Because it was small. It was. I mean, it was, it was a charter school with two campuses, you know? So that would have yeah, been hard. Yeah, I got to be, at, well, I got to be at one campus four days a week. That's, um, that is not often the case. Yeah. So. What what would you want to do? Like if you didn't have the paperwork or you could hire someone to do all the paperwork for you or something. <laughs> like if you didn't have the stuff you don't like, which is like I'm assuming the paperwork and maybe some of the meetings. So we had some good IEP meetings and we had some very uneventful IEP meetings. Um, what would you do? Like what would be your dream project to bring on to an elementary campus? And that's like very, I'm would, sorry I didn't give you a warning about that one at all because it just came okay. to my head <laughs> I, I mean I honestly what I would love to do and I think that um, I think that, that the schools that Lexi and Zanny went to I think they um, did a really um, I mean I 
I would want to do social emotional learning because I feel like um, our world, well, first of all, currently, <laughs> that's exactly what we need. So what I would like to do is, um, is to build school cultures that are very much focused on social emotional learning and connection and, and, um, and start there from a very early age. And I know that's what they were doing at that school as well. And I, I, um, appreciate that. And also, you know, I think that, um, that giving kids tools that are related to how their brains work, um, and how, um, is the beginning of teaching them self-awareness, self-reflection, which is the key to also teaching self-regulation. So I feel like so many of our kids are struggling with self-regulation, whether that is through anxiety, whether it's through um, early um, childhood trauma or ADHD or autism. All of those things start with um, um, self-awareness and self-regulation. And so I think that the SEL, which is a social-emotional learning, is really important. And I think about all these kids that are missing all these developmental moments um, while they are quarantining. I think yeah. it's going to be super important to um, start literally when we get back to school with a social emotional learning focus. Like what like really I think we're going to have to really do some strong caretaking in that realm when we return to school because there's going to be um, you know, there's going to be a lot of um, trauma, a lot of PTSD, a lot of um, dismissed developmental moments, you know, a lot of grief. A lot of students are grieving right now, and there's a lot of depression and there's a lot of anxiety. So I think, um, to me, that's always, you can't, um, you can't learn, you can't grow if you're not feeling safe and regulated. So to me, that that is the key to everything, you know, and I, I, I do that through a mindfulness lens and I feel like those are the things that really should be focused on in schools more often. You know, we have, um, even the schools with the best intentions, they have their social emotional lessons often too far and few between, even though they want to do that, we just get so bogged down with all the, um, you know, all the curriculum um, standards that we have to meet. And so we really do kind of um, shortchange that piece. And I think we're going to see the results of that, especially after the school team, where we're going to see kids really struggling. Yeah. Um, that would be my, in the perfect world, that, that would be my focus. I would love to create a school that really works more on, self-regulation and, and then expand that out to executive function skills because also at the root of so many kids struggling in school. Yeah, and that's, it's the whole executive function piece of, That's Zandy, well, I feel like. I like that girl's so smart and yet yeah, there's, just, there's just that piece missing. Right, and that, things. that can be and those can be taught, right? I mean, those can be taught, and um, but it has to be really um, like a sort of um, systematic teaching and um, tools, and you know, it's, it's and it's often hard for um, parents who have kids with executive functioning difficulties often have their own executive functioning difficulties. So it's it's kind of a um, you know, it takes a village. It's a whole kind of yeah. Let's come up with systems that we can incorporate into in families and schools and. In layman's um, terms, explain exe- executive functioning because I feel like I didn't really know tons about it honestly until like the last couple of years, and I probably should have known about it sooner. So, like, what would you like, explain? Like, give a definition of that real quick. Like, a, okay, so a layman's um, way. Okay, so um, oftentimes people talk about executive functioning skills. Um, they kind of relate to um, 
they 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 give you the um, analogy of an orchestra, right? So your conductor um, is um, your all the pieces of the orchestra, all those different kinds of executive functioning skills, and you need a conductor, which is pretty much your prefrontal cortex, to kind of make all those things come together to, you know, make beautiful music. So, exec, you know, your executive function, functioning system is all of those things, and it incorporates a lot of things like time management, planning and organizing, working memory, um, Inhibition, so the inhibition is like resisting impulses. Shifting, which is transitioning from one task to another. So all of those pieces have to come together for you to be able to sort of function smoothly and move throughout a task, right? Okay. So, so it's, um, it's a system in your brain that um, really helps you to tackle to know how to tackle a task. So, um, you know, and each, especially, and it's not just academics, it's like getting something done, getting a task done, but it could also be like writing a paper. You have to use, you know, working memory. You have to use planning and organizing so you can structure your paper. You have to, um, you know, in, you know, resist the impulse to check out because it's really hard or resist that impulse to go do something else. Um, you might have to shift from one idea to the next. So people, you know, they often call ADHD a deficit of executive function because when you look at an ADHD student with ADHD, you'll see many of those difficulties, right? They can't pay attention to something that's not high interest. Um, they can't resist that distraction over there. They have poor time management, so they kind of leave everything to the last minute or they think they can do more in a short time um, working they have, you know oftentimes students with ADHD teachers will describe them as having terrible memories but the truth is they really don't usually have terrible memories it's that they weren't able to first attend to the information so it never even got in or they can't sustain their attention for something that's repetitive and boring mm-hmm. so that's Sandy. Because um, I'm like, you have a really good memory, but I'm like, you really don't know your sight cards? Like, okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That was very beneficial to me because I never have explained it. Well, I've never explained it to anyone, honestly, because it's just one of those, like, it's just hard to explain when you haven't studied it. And you just kind of know, right. okay, that's, you just kind of, like with Jackson, I kind of just know that his memory is short-term bad and this and this and this and that he's going to have time traveling. You know, he has a hard time doing more than two-step directions and like, you know, so we're building off of it, but you don't, right. I never had like a definition like that explained to me. So I appreciate that a lot actually. Right. Right. Um, so different, um, there are a lot of, um, um, there are a lot of researchers or specialists who talk about executive function and they all have like a different amount. Sometimes, Someone will say there's 32 executive function schools, but but they basically all kind of fall under those um, those cognitive processes um, that in, you know include attentional control and working memory and um, innovation and even some problems you know which can all apply to problem solving also. So they all kind of cover that. Some of them might break those down into even more. Um, specific things, but you know, I I often um, when I work with students, especially in my private practice, we do work on things like time management or time awareness because and sometimes people will break those executive functioning skill of time down into multiple things because there is this time blindness. You know, even even for students to say, you know, one of the things we sometimes will do is work on. So you have these three things to do tonight, these three homework assignments. Let's start by estimating how long you think it'll take. Because sometimes they'll be like, I got this, Mom. I can do all of my, you know, you know playing on my, you know, whatever, PlayStation. And then I, I only have to do these three little things. And then you say, well, how long will it take? It's like 
So we start out by saying, like, how long will this take? Okay, five minutes, really? Five minutes. Okay, so how do you break that down? And then they start going, well, I have to do research. And I have to do something. <laughs> okay, so the part that's going to take five minutes is picking the topic. But what about all? You know, so, so sometimes what we'll have is two cones, what you estimated, and then what you actually took. So that they can start to see the difference in, you know, how they're estimating time. And there's all kinds of things you can do with like time because, you know, that is a, that is a very common, you know, um, challenge for a lot of our students with IT. So we can do all kinds of things to work with them on that. You know, even just having one of those time timers so they can see like how, but but, you know, you have to manage with people's anxiety also because sometimes seeing that clock the time timer. Do you know what I'm talking about with the time timer? No. I mean, I'm assuming okay, it's a there's... timer. That like It's a timer, but it's kind of a reverse timer. So when you set the timer for 60, let's say you set the timer for 15 minutes, that 15 minutes is, um, you kind of sweep a hand down and that 15 minutes is red. And the, so as it okay, yeah. moves up, you're seeing that the oh, there's only like a sliver of red left. That means I only have two more minutes. They can actually have a visual. Because for some kids looking at a clock and saying 15 minutes, it doesn't make sense to them, like how that clock moves. So this shows them how their time is We use that for Jackson for all of a day. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) We only use it for a day. It wasn't great that I only used it for a day. Oh, you only used it for a day. I thought you said you used it for the whole day. Oh, I'm like, no, I didn't didn't work for him. This is where I get lazy because like... I just having something else to do like adds to it. So I'd rather just put it on my watch and then have him watch me start it and then he'll see it go. And then when it buzzes, I show him buzzing it and then he's fine, but it's not teaching him. If that's working, if that's working, but it's also not teaching him. This is that kind of functioning skill. You know what I'm saying? Like him being able to like, doesn't sound weird for him to be able to go, Oh, that's what five minutes feels like. Mm-hmm. you know, would be more beneficial for him in the long run than me just, because he, uh, and obviously sometimes I'm like, I have four more dishes. Let me just add more time to it. <laughs> and then I finish the dishes and I'm like, oh, no, it was only two minutes. Like, you know. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, he's also still young, you know. You have time. You don't have to do everything, Thank you know, you. at once. So, I mean, if if your system is working, that's working right now for you guys as a family. Later on, you might want to be teaching him more about um, time, um, how, you know, what it feels like and teaching him more time awareness, right? Yeah. Right now, it sounds like you're using it for um, shifting, which is good. Like, when, you know, when this goes off, we shift. Yeah, and that's, yeah. But I also realize that I've done some things in my parenting that are totally for me and not for them. Like, I've realized... Just a couple of days ago that the girls don't know their birthday. <laughs> and I'm like, they're going to be 10 and they don't know their birthday because I didn't want them to know so that they can go into Disneyland longer. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then I totally forgot about it. <laughs> right. That's and then funny. I'm like, uh, you should probably, then I was like, I, well, I don't want to tell you this year because it lands on a Thursday and I'll just tell you your birthday's on a Friday, a Saturday that we can celebrate correctly. Cause they're going to want to celebrate on their, you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it, so I finally taught them their birthday. <laughs> a days ago. Okay. Well, you did it. And I want to say this because I think it's so important as a parent of, you know, students that have, you know, children who have challenges. You do, you know, doing things that help you ultimately helps them, right? Because it's a, um, it's, it's not always an easy pathway, right? And so forgiveness, no judgment. You are, you know, every day you can say you've done well by your girls. They are amazing. And Jackson, too, who I don't know as well, but I know he's made huge progress. Those girls are loved and Jackson, too. But I know they know that, you know, and they have a confidence about them in so many ways. And I know, I know, I know that they also struggle with self-esteem, but there is, there is a, um, strength in both of them, right? That, you know, comes from, you know, things that you've imparted to them. So you can't, no judgment as a parent towards yourself. I think that's such a huge thing. And, you know, look at, we all, we all 
parent, you know, parent with mistakes. But thank God we have this chance to repair and move on, and and you know they can learn from our mistakes too. So I always point out when I made a mistake, or I mean, not always. I would say sometimes it's a, it takes me a little while to get around to that, but <laughs> but we do. But it's kind of it's it's you know good for them to know that also. So. Thank you for saying that because I, I think I vacillate from freaking out to then think I'm on the badass. Like I don't have like this middle ground at all. It's like, and so it's nice to like, cause I see their strength and potential. And that's one of the things I think it was hard to lead the school that we left because I knew the people that were in their daily life truly did want the best for them. Yeah. You know, and so it was, and especially before the, the ad- admin change that ex- like happened, like mm-hmm. I knew that school was going in the right direction, and I knew the heart of that school was about social emotional learning and was going to put yeah. the child first and was going to do these things. Um, so yeah. we and we needed that school for especially for the first three, two to three years. Like we needed that school, and now we just need something else. Um, but thank you for yeah, saying that because I think it's I think as parents I I have a shirt that I made because I said it once in the podcast like. I don't need you judging me. I'm judging myself just fine. <laughs> like, I'm good. That's awesome. I love that. That is the truth, right? Yeah. Right? So it's nice when you hear, yeah. but, and I told, I told uh, the girls, SPED teacher, who you know, um, cool. as well, like, when you hear it from a professional, like, someone who you trust, but you don't just trust them as a parent, you trust them as a professional, you're like, it has more weight to it. You know what I'm saying? Like you've seen lots of parents and you've seen lots of kids and you've done lots of assessments. So to have that, like, like that compliment come from you, like means a lot. I can carry it on Mm. for a while. Does that make sense? Because no, it does. I mean, I, I want you to um, just know it and feel it, but I hear what you're saying. Um, And you can, and then we do that as parents. Like we second guess. I mean, I, I am a professional, but oh my gosh, with my own kids, I second guess all the time because sometimes all that training and all that schooling and all that education flies out the window and you have a moment where you go, hmm, that is, uh, <laughs> that way, that was totally against everything I know. And then, but I always remember I have the opportunity to repair. And, uh, and to, you know, do the mea culpa, like I, that was, you know, I got, I was a little bit, you know, I lost my temper or I, you know, I didn't do that exactly right. Or I didn't, you know, yeah, that was a mistake and I wish I could take it back and I'm sorry. So definitely I think those are, um, important and human moments, right? If we were perfect. That would put way too much pressure on our own children too. Like if we were perfect parents, and <laughs> we're yeah. we're giving them uh, <laughs> we're giving them um, um, modeling for being an imperfect parent, and that yes. is in and of itself is okay and good. Cause, you know. Yeah, they have a, they have a big margin to improve for me. <laughs> like, <laughs> they'll be able to be even a better parent than me. Um, I was going to ask you, like, what would you say to parents? Is like like the one thing that parents should know but I kind of feel like you touched on it that like not to judge yourself too harshly and that knowing that you're taking care of yourself is taking care of them would there be anything else you would like add that you would want to tell parents um I I guess what I would say is I I I mean I'm not going to say this is like the number one most important thing but but something that's been on my mind a lot lately is I would say um really model emotional language and emotional caretaking for your children. So what I mean by that is um, um, when you are give, give um, your emotions language. So, you know, when you're feeling um, anxious or worried or something, you know, you can model for them and say, look at this. I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling in my body that I'm feeling a little stressed or a little anxious. And I think what I need to do for that is I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to go outside and get some air. Do you want to come with me and do some breathing with me? So that they start to see that there are, you know, emotions are part of our everyday life. 
and taking care of them and having tools and strategies, I think if you can start to teach your child that, then they start to feel, um, then they might have that feeling of being equipped to deal with what comes their way. You know, and the world is stressful and full of anxiety right now. And having, um, feeling like you have like a little toolkit that you can pull out and, and, and help yourself makes you feel tethered to the world a little bit more as, a, as opposed to those kids, you know, starting to have, feel anxiety and you don't know what that is. And it's an uncomfortable feeling and feeling like you can't do anything about it and that you might spiral out into a panic attack or, or you don't know what it is that your body doesn't feel good. It can be scary, but knowing that, um, that you have something you can do to help yourself calm or knowing that you're, you know, your parent can go sit with you and breathe and help you. Just starting to have those dialogues makes it, normalizes it. Mm. And gives, and I think the world is really anxious right now. And so I, I feel like on a day-to-day basis, I am consciously having to regulate my stress and anxiety. And I know that if I am, as an adult who has a, you know, mindfulness practice and who, um, works hard at that, I know that there are many, many people out there and children particularly who don't know how to manage that. So I would say that would be, you know, a big encouraging um, goal that I would give parents to, to just start simple, you know, start by identifying new emotions and something that you do to help yourself, you know, so that they can start to, to connect that. I think that's um, a good first step. That is an, that's an awesome first step. I feel like sometimes I feel like I have to be so put together for them and then they see me not put together and then they almost relax sometimes. And then I repair, you know, obviously. But like, yeah, it's, I mean, I, it's a good, really good point got you made. And I was listening to this other podcast about this with another psychologist, actually. And they were, the, the, the client came in kind of complaining that their like four month old was doing nothing but crying. And her response was, that's all every human wants to do. We just, as an adult, have learned not to have coping mechanisms so we don't cry all the time yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. And I feel like that's what you're talking about. Like, yeah. as a little, uh, you know, Lexi didn't know what her body feels like when it's anxiety or angry or jealousy and these mm-hmm. things. And it's up to us as parents to to model it for them and to name it for them and be yeah. that open space for them, especially in this sure. time where life is crazy. Right. I mean, yeah, definitely. For those kiddos that don't know, you can narrate for them, too. You can say, huh, you know, I see that you are clenching your fist or you're doing that thing with your jaw. And so I'm wondering if you are feeling anxious or angry or whatever it is. And um, I know that for me, I sometimes go on a walk. Let's go on a walk with the dog and see if that helps you. And then you can help them fill their toolbox. Oh, okay. So, you know, walking isn't your favorite thing. Let's go out and sit on a rock and look at the sky and maybe take some deep breaths. Or, and then what you're doing is just sort of helping them embed into their brain that that um, there are things you can do, strategies that you can use um, when you start to feel these feelings, these sensations in your body. Um, that are connected to an emotion like anxiety or anger or whatever it is. So, yeah, I think, and I think that's a good first step. I also want to point out that it may sound kind of cheesy or stupid or whatever, because immediately when I started saying some of these things, I was like, this sounds like who talks like this? <laughs> like, you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> like, but now the girls just talk like this. Like, we yeah. all, like, it, when when you become comfortable with it, they become comfortable with it. Because I mean, mm-hmm. I do I do this the most with Jackson, and it's so funny how like I've adapted so much and do it more often with Jackson, even though I should still be doing it with the girls. But mm-hmm. anyway, I just judge myself again. Okay, stop it, Patty. Okay, um, <laughs> so like this, it's now now he'll now tell me I'm angry, and it's like, well, that's great. He's now saying angry versus throwing all the crap, you know. Yeah. And he's getting amazing. familiar with it. And so mm-hmm. I feel like in, immediately in my head, I was like, 
who talks like this? Why is this? But now we're like, like, you have to just get used to it and you just have to do it. And then it doesn't become, you become comfortable in it, naming it yourself yeah. and saying it yourself that. Yeah. And then I would, I would ask the next step, like, well, what, what do you need? You're angry. What do you need? You know, do you want me to help you with that? And, um, and it just starts them. Like we also know, like sort of once we start to name it, it does move it into a different part of the brain. Once we start to observe it, we're in a different part. We're observing, you know, we're in the observation part of the brain. And so it does can take that emotion down a little bit, you know, um, not always, but sometimes. And that's the goal that we're sort of moving to a place where they can sort of choose a strategy and get back into that, you know, um, higher thinking prefrontal cortex, right? Yeah. So they can solve them. But I think, um, I think it's important to help them. And I often do it with a, I'm, I'm observing or I wonder because sometimes it'll make someone mad if you actually identify the wrong thing. <laughs> like, I think you're anxious. No, I'm angry. <laughs> you know? Oh, okay. Well, and so Lexi, wondering. Lexi is such shame around all of it, but she doesn't well, want to be told an, an, an emotion that she feels is negative. I realize. Mm -hmm. So you have to yeah. more like, I don't want to say tiptoe around it, but be like, Hey, look, you're losing control. What's going on? You know, mm -hmm. kind of like stuff. So I can imagine some kids having sure. that issue as well. What would be your like kind of, I don't want to say go-to book for parents. What would be your go-to books for parents to like kind of learn the basis of that? Like I know I would probably go to the whole brain child because that's like. That's what I was going to say. The whole brain child or no drama discipline. I love the Tina um, Bryson and Dan Siegel books. I think they're really such great starters. Whole brain child is so good because you can, it does talk about all of that, talking about emotions. And um, and then the other one I really, their, their new book is The Power of Showing Up. Which oh, it's good. I really like that because. They that's a good one for parents because it does um, it does help a little bit with that parent judgment and putting a little bit less pressure on parents and just talking about um, you know I don't I actually don't have it memorized but she goes by um, like I think it's the four S's or the five S's I'm not even sure and uh, she talks about um, really like. You don't have to be a perfect parent. Um, there are just some basic ideas. Um, and I think it's the five, four, four or five S's. And it's about four S's, I think. Um, talking about, um, you know, making kids feel safe, making kids feel seen, soothing so that they can feel secure. And I mean, and she just really talks about, um, like in all else fails, like you're not going to be perfect all the time or do, but sometimes those are just showing up is all that's needed, you know? And she talks a lot about the research of that. Like you don't have to make mistakes and don't have to be perfect. But when you really do those things to make your kids feel safe, seen, soothed, first in, and ultimately secure, that's all it is. You know, and it doesn't mean you can't be a you know, mom that holds two jobs or three jobs or whatever, or, you know, you don't have to do everything perfectly, but those things are the key. And I, I really like that, that book as well. So I don't know. I'm big fans there. <laughs> um, I did not know that. Why did I not know that? They're like, I wish they were my grandma and grandpa. Like, they're not old enough to be, <laughs> but like, I wish they were because I could just go to them for all this advice, you know? Cause I know they and Dan Siegel's brain is so brilliant. Like he has yeah. books that you can't understand, and then he's oh, able yeah, to sure. write these books with Tina that are like able to be comprehended. Um, mm -hmm. I like I I listened to that one, I guess last year, and it was it was really good. And this being the scene one was the one that I really wanted to work on with with Zandy. I'm yeah. like, I don't see her. Like I needed to see her for her. I'm I'm kind of blinded by all that stuff. So. Uh, so you did, yeah. re you read that book out also? Uh, yes, I read it with my ears. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah, that's, I'm, I think it's good. And it, it does sort of um, address a little bit of that um, when we, as parents, feel, you know, like less than. Like we're not 
being the perfect parent. And so like, it really kind of boils it down to like the things that are really important. And those are doable. <laughs> they are doable. I felt like I, now that you said that, it felt like there was this pressure release. I probably should go listen to it again so that the pressure releases again because we know how we fall into our habits again. But that pressure release, like it gives you, like they plain out and give you permission to fail. And you're like, oh, thank God, because I already did. You know, this is good. (laughs) So, okay. Well, I appreciate you giving an insight and gifting us with all your knowledge for this last hour. Like, it's, I learned stuff. It's been interesting. It's been really beneficial. Like, and I also want to publicly this thank you for loving my kids so well and getting them to a spot better than I could have gotten them especially like they needed you when they had you and I'm so grateful for that and I'm also grateful that we can one day drink and then you and I can have that (laughs) me too me too and honestly my pleasure you know those girls are amazing and I literally cannot wait to follow them and see where they go and what they do I think it's going to be interesting one day to have a conversation with you and your be- best, one of your best friends and their former SPED teacher and SPED teacher. Um, I, I, I picture us 10 years from now when they're off to college, right? And it's going, <laughs> oh my yeah. goodness, like, remember when Zandy wouldn't even stay in class? Like, yeah. Do you remember I... when Lexi, like, would withdraw and then wouldn't have the, the crappy day the rest of the day? And now she wants to do this and now she's on the path to doing that. Like, I'm looking oh forward to those gosh. conversations with, with you two especially because y'all are such Me an integ- integral part of getting to them where getting to them getting them where they are today, which is a lot further than where we were when we first walked on that campus. So I can't wait and I know it will be interesting for sure. <laughs> yeah, considering it changes daily, um <laughs> who knows where they're gonna go. But thank you once again for coming on. I appreciate sure, it. Sure. I appreciate Patty. you. Oh, thank you. I add like I right back at you. Thanks for riding on the denial bus. What's your stops coming up? You're gonna have to get off. Get back to the real world, life. Don't worry, you got this.